Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Trade Talk. In this episode, we are going to be speaking more about market commentary as opposed to uh, specific stocks. The reason why I'm bringing into market commentary is because I do not, well, as most people have seen, if you've uh, looked at the Delta Hedge episode, well, listened rather than looked, uh, you would catch on to what I was saying as now we have complete procrastination within the political parties. Nancy Pelosi saying we give it 48 hours to strike a deal. Bunch of bullshit. You know already that as we've been taught in our lives, procrastination is bad. However, the federal government does nothing but procrastinate. Uh, we've been taught don't do things at the last minute. However, that is all that ever happens to any budget, any bill, anything that uh, can be held up, will be held up if there is a means to hold it up. And here we are. So the only thing that I've liked, which we've commented on, and shout out to uh, Yeezy for uh, that discussion we had about it, is electronic vehicles, and Neo has been kicking butt. Uh, obviously, there's other things in the markets that are doing well. I agree. However... I like to play it safe in this particular time because there is no real understanding of who wins and what is to happen. Just today, even Biden rolling out his tax plan and everyone saying, oh, good Lord, 62 percent at the highs. Yeah. It could still go either way, even though some people feel like it's the Biden presidency by a landslide. I think it still goes either way. Uh, But in this episode, I will give you the concept of what uh, the market commentary I have is and how it weaves into uh, what is going on politically. And I can't say, you know, what markets do, whether one person wins or the other person wins. I think markets go for a nice rally if you get a Trump, uh, a Trump victory. And I think you get uh, a nice repricing if you get a Biden presidency, especially after uh, those uh, tax um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, that tax plan has been laid out, you know. So let's get into the episode and let me give you an understanding of what we will be talking about. So the episode is going to be talking about uh, currency devaluation in relation to the mass printing that is going on. You see, what has been happening recently, especially it's not after my Delta Hedge episode, but You will hear it more in markets and you will see it if you're reading articles enough. You'll start to see people are now short vol. Short vol meaning short volatility. The concept of short volatility is a little different than Delta Hedge because Delta Hedge is meant to uh, protect your profits. And short vol um, is just meant for people to sell uh, calls, which is to be short positions you already own. However, with Delta Hedging, we are buying puts. We're both short. It's just that in one instance, we're using cash. In the other instance, we're using uh, shares that we already own, right? So people are short vol currently um, and then also using some cash to buy puts. Um, Everything that it shows is that people are very pessimistic on the short end and very optimistic on the long end. The VIX, which is the volatility index for the overall market, is saying that, which is, which is weird because it should be 
on the long end, more people buying insurance and shorting, uh, sorry, and buying uh, short protection on the short end, things should be kind of more stable. Again, why I think that a lot of people are anticipating a Biden presidency. So puts on the short end. However, my concept of why I'm on the short end has more to do with political gridlock as I like to keep my thesis. I'm not always saying my thesis is correct. I have been pretty correct. I would say at a percentage this year, I'd probably be still in the 90 percentile, maybe in like 85 percent. I'll do the numbers uh, on the last episode of the year and break that down. I'd like to do it at the end. But that is what's happening. So Volatility has now been pro- uh, short vol has now been proving that it is in total conjunction with um, my delta hedge. Slightly different, but still the same concept. At the end of the day, you're still buying insurance protection. So let's get into what is going to happen and what you are seeing in our markets. I had a great conversation with someone the other day uh, about how his fear was that we are going to print ourselves into a problem. And I was saying to him that I agree and concur with what he's talking about. However, I do have reservations of it being so cut and dry. We all think of it so cut and dry. Like, oh, man, I remember, like, sorry, let me take a step back. I remember back in 2008, everyone used to be like, oh, with all this uh, federal uh, uh, stimulus and quantitative easing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, food prices and crops are going to be out of this world and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The main thing most people forget, and you'll see that it comes up often, I'm not saying what person is an amateur by not saying this, but eh, it's some amateur shit. The amateur hour thing is that people think inflation and these prices are going to spike simply because there's more money in the economy, and that is not how it works. We are the global reserve currency. Go back to the episode. It's not where I'm trying to say I am so right, but it is trying to say that this is what the economics of, this is what the global economics are. This is the macro of things. If we were paying back people's currencies, if we were paying back debts in other people's currencies, yes, we could get a hyperinflationary situation, double-digit inflationary situation. But we don't. They pay us back in our currency. We don't pay them in their currency. They all try to devalue their currency so they can have cheaper labor. Don't lose me here. You'll understand what I'm trying to say by the time this whole episode is over. The episode's a bit complex, but the episode gives you an idea of how of why the formulation of what we are doing is the way we are doing it and why I'm not changing it. It's not about being stubborn, but it is about understanding what is actually going on. So to first start this off, as I'm telling you, right? We're speaking about currency devaluation and how we get to this this situation. We have two things that happen in the economy. We have fiscal policy and we have monetary policy. In fiscal policy, it's what politicians can do. Think Trump pushing the Fed to spend, um, how taxes are going to be, whether they be raised or reduced. That's fiscal policy, right? Uh, think of unemployment insurance, things like that. That's a fiscal policy measure. Then there's monetary policy. Monetary policy is what the central bank does. When you hear, oh, Fed Chief uh, Powell or uh, Treasury Secretary 
Mnuchin have come with uh, the want to keep rates low, um, the want to, uh, what do you call this, um, uh, make quantitative easing into the, uh, into the markets. That is monetary policy, right? These two things are working hand in hand. But there's a point where monetary policy runs its course. That's where we are now. When monetary policy runs its course, you get low interest rates, zero interest rates. In the situation that happened back in 2008, we didn't get to a point where we got to zero. However, in this go-round, we got to zero. So now what do you do when you're at zero? You quantitative ease. What is quantitative easing? You now start injecting money into markets, right? Now, you know that we had quantitative easing last time. They injected money into markets. However, this time, Fed's running out of ammo. And when we're talking about it running out of ammo... It coincides with this concept that some people think we're going to have hyperinflation and then our currency will devalue, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I will be the first to say in this episode, it'll slightly contradict what I'm saying, but it's because there's a long-term and short-term view. In the long term, yes, we will have currency devaluation. It's, It's imminent. However, it will be a very tough fight, in my opinion, because... They can't get inflation to go up, even though they keep printing more money. You ever notice that? They had to literally tell you they're going to peg it. Now, most people say, oh, we're pegging it because the economy is so bad. And the economy is bad, right? The market's good. The economy's bad. So Mnuchin says we're going to peg it at 2% and let it run. Two, Two years, nothing's changing. Okay, I agree. Asset prices will increase. These all tie back into these other episodes. This is all a full theory. However, it, 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 it doesn't matter, right? It's showing you that as you continue to print, as you continue to quantitative ease, inflation is not upticking. Now, file that into your mind as I go through the rest of this and you'll understand how it ties back in. So when you're using a lot of quantitative easing, it doesn't help to deleverage things, right? What it's actually doing, it's leveraging things. This is what is called the short-term debt cycle, long-term debt cycle within the business cycle, right? When rates are low, it, it, it allows people to take on more leverage. You guys all understand this. The real estate market is hot. Everyone's like, yo, yo, buy a house now, buy a house now, buy a house now. That's the reason. Asset prices are increasing. Buy it now. Forcefully quantitative easing. Then you come into, um, forcefully quantitative easing has nothing to do with fiscal policy yet. They've reduced the rates on the monetary side. Now has now is making it a little easier to borrow, making people run to banks, okay? Now, you have this happening. You have assets prices increasing. Obviously, 2008 should ring, should ring in, your, in your head, which leads us to a leveraged situation within the business cycle, and we'll have a, a situation of rinse and repeat unless more money is spent, Now, when more money is spent, you say, okay, 
what, you know, where are you spending this money? Because the money now isn't going to be spent from quantitative easing. Quantitative easing increased asset prices. The money would be spent by the fiscal policy, whether it be giving out more money directly on uh, universal basic income, um, more infrastructure projects, things of that nature. You need to spend the money to now try to deleverage um, the economy again. I know that may sound confusing, but remember, keep this and file this as I go through this uh, thesis and you'll understand why. So again, you would spend money to deleverage the um, economy. Politicians would spend money to deleverage the economy, i.e. bailouts, anything that... uh, not about circulating money into markets, but circulating money directly into people's hands. Again, stimulus. Again, what was happening? Let's, let's tie it into current time. You have March, asset prices are up, coronavirus hits, markets want to deleverage. The government doesn't want them to deleverage, even though they should deleverage at that time. Infusion of capital by quantitative easing on markets, pushing Asset prices back up artificially. Now you're running into a problem where they cannot get inflation to move up because it's an artificial injection of capital um, and buying back your own treasuries. So you now have money and you say, how do we get some deleverage into this economy? We redistribute the money through stimulus and unemployment insurance, etc. But moving forward, so we can get a real grasp of this, right? So sometimes you would say that 2008 was the end of a long-term debt cycle. And that, I thought, was the case, too. I mean, I remember I used to sell bonds. And for the longest time, I used to be able to do a particular trick that I did for a long time. And it was with structured products. And and I, I did an episode on structured products if anyone listened to it, but you might understand it even a little more now. The reason structured products worked at that time is because interest rates were low, and interest rates have continued to stay low when you would think that at the end of that 2008 debt cycle, sorry, not the end of it, but like, you know, the, the end of the bull run in 2008, and you get a, a true recession, you're thinking, okay, the debt cycle would reset itself, but it didn't. We didn't have any interest rate increases. People were still able to get 4% mortgages and below right up until, I I remember had a client getting a 4% mortgage in 2017. Uh, And I'm sure they were still around in 2018 and now they're two and a half or better, right? So the debt cycle didn't end. We're still in a long-term debt cycle? So it makes you say, I know that's a rhetorical kind of question to myself, it makes you say, are these cycles now smaller cycles rather than long cycles? Not to be confusing, but to say this, okay, you have a, you have a cycle that's going on for, what, uh, since like 2001 all the way to 2008, but it doesn't reset itself as everyone thinks, like, you know, you get a recession roughly every 10 years or within 10 years, it's still running. But why is it running? Because it's artificially being manipulated. That's why it's still running. <laughs> so that's the answer to that, that, that question to say, you know, 
it didn't end in that long? No, it didn't end. We didn't end that long-term debt cycle. However, it was the closest thing to the end of a cycle because this public health scare is not the end to the debt cycle. Actually, it's, you're, you're injecting the debt cycle uh, with PEDs and steroids, man. It's about to blow up and get huge. So as you're saying, you're looking at 2008 long-term debt cycle, um, you start to say like, all right, some currency devaluation is coming, right? Uh, you can, you, some would say, look at Bitcoin. We definitely are going to get some currency devaluation because Bitcoin's prices keep edging up, edging up, edging up, right? Because people are saying, well, well I'm going to put my money. I'm not going to buy treasuries. They're not yielding anything. And this is what I mean by what? Um, what yields and inflation are doing. Again, peg that to your head. I'll come back to it. So I'm going to buy gold. I'm going to buy a crypto product such as like a Bitcoin, right? Okay. But the short-term cycle keeps showing that these things are happening. What I mean is, this little micro section within what is happening in our economy right now is almost like a mini cycle within a long-term debt cycle. Because what you need is a systematic problem to knock things off kilter. Some people would be like, like a pandemic. I agree, like a pandemic. But again, it's a public health situation. You need something that needs to rip right through uh the economy in such a systematic way that it literally devalues things. That's not what this did. This didn't devalue things. It just shut off an economy for a little bit. But, you know, you sprinkle money on that economy, the economy turns back on. You get a political gridlock fight of people not wanting to sprinkle the money on the economy consistently, so it starts to fall apart again. That's not what would happen in a complete systematic situation. A complete systematic situation is going to take you more than just sprinkling money on a situation to keep things right, right? When it was the, when it was the um, mortgage crisis, you had to literally overhaul the whole system in order to make it work. And as long as it wasn't overhauled, the system would not balance itself out. This is what I think, this is a sidebar comment, but this is what I think you're going to see with um, commercial rents, and uh, residential rents with people not being able to pay. If, 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 <sighs> expect more political unrest if they don't address this situation as a whole with government, which, again, as you continue to re- listen to the rest of this, I think you'll see that it has to be addressed at a point. So uh, without losing you here, we go back to this, right? So we have a situation where people are looking for other places to put their money because... Treasuries are yielding much of nothing. And rates start to hit zero. Monetary policy can only quantitative ease, add liquidity to public markets. There's no more ammo, right? So the politicians now are stepping in. And as those politicians are stepping in, they come to realize quantitative easing doesn't cause inflation. Ah, Most people may not be aware of that, but it doesn't. Adding money into markets is not what causes inflation. 
it causes asset prices to increase, hence rich getting richer, hence people saying, have, have you seen how many billion dollars the upper class made? Yes, because quantitative easing is pretty much universal basic income for rich people. It, it, it's consistent money being pumped into things that they would own, hence assets. But I don't want to get on a tangent. Quantitative easing doesn't cause inflation. What leads to inflation is a lot of bank lending or government deficits uh, from large public spending. So we get a lot of bank lending um, that inflates prices, right? But those are prices of assets. Don't get it confused. Or you get um, inflation from uh, government spending. Think about when uh, there were wars and you would start to see the price of food and individual, individual items start to get more expensive uh, because of government spending being sent to other things that are not for its immediate constituents and people. Okay, but QE on its own is not inflation or doesn't lead to inflation, um, just liabilities on a Fed's balance sheet consistently increasing. But now going back to this concept where I was explaining to you that we're in a very interesting situation when you're saying that how, when does our currency end up deleveraging? Well, use Japan as an example. Japan has literally had stagflation for, oof, what is it, since the 1980s or so? So the last time their stock market peaked was in the 80s. It had a higher value than our stock market currently. And as that happened, their economy went flat. Now, in Japan, which would be a great example of what currency deflation could look, sorry, currency, uh, yeah, currency um, deflation could look like is that um, you start to see that no matter what they were doing, right, they could literally print more money, uh, uh, um, just try all different kind of monetary and fiscal policies and it wouldn't move. We've learned in our economy that we could spend a lot of money and our interest rates, sorry, not our interest rates, our inflation wouldn't move. It lets you know that there's a lot more money to be printed and infused into the markets for some time. So my thought was, all right, we probably get to two, three years, we start seeing maybe some currency devaluation of the U.S. dollar. However, I think that we don't see the currency devaluation in the U.S. dollar until probably the later part of the 2020s. I think we still got another like five years, six years till we start to see it. It's not on the short term, in my opinion. And again, I want to make sure I'm, uh, everyone understands because I know I'm using inflation, deflation, etc. Inflation will be our prices for your common goods that you buy, like a car, your coffee, uh, etc., becoming more expensive while your money stays the same 
or lose its, its value. It would you lose its value because there's overabundance of it, right? And the consumer price index, which is the things you buy, would reflect that. So I just wanted to make sure I simplified that. I don't want the episode to end up going too long because there is a lot that um, I can say. So I might have to break this into two parts, which is what I'll probably do. So let's say that we're, you know, you have the um, Japanese economy stat with stagflation. You have this situation where... Um, we can still spend a hell of a lot more money. Well, what happens to yields? Yields means what happens to the money that you're receiving back. What you'll come to find out in the money that we're receiving back is, is that the Federal Reserve, or rather we should say the monetary policy, will be trying to set a, a benchmark, a peg for inflation. And unless we can get to that peg of inflation, you're going to continue to see more and more money. Peg of inflation right now is, is set at 2%, but it's kind of moving. They'll accept anywhere from 3 to 4%. And they want to get treasuries to start paying out 1% to 2%, which means they want to take your negative interest rates that you have currently and move them to 1% to 2%. Now, when that happens you would now have to get another disruption in the long-term debt cycle so you could have a problem again. What we had is, and, I, and, and that's what I mean by the next recession, excuse me, a problem in the long-term debt cycle to have, to have a problem again, right? Because what I'm saying to you in simple terms is that they've levered up the economy, levered up um, debt with asset prices being high. They've gotten things at the peg that they want. This is hypothetically. This is how you would devalue the, this is how the currency would devalue itself. Everything hits the pegs that they want. But it's all artificial because it's been manipulated. You're not allowing things to naturally settle the way they're supposed to settle, but you got the, the benchmarks that you want and your long-term cycle would now be interrupted. This is where I say, as I've said before, the public health issue is not a recession. The recession is to come. That's where you can create the systematic recession issue. When people are saying that, oh, inflation is going to be high, the U.S. dollar is going to devalue, they're saying that there should be a systematic issue that corrects markets. And when this situation happens, the cycle starts again. <laughs> However, the, the consensus by many economists is that how would you start it again when you should, when you should be out of ammo? And the Fed is saying, well, we want to start it again because we're going to forcefully get treasuries to 1% to 2%, which is interest rates um, or yields, what, what stuff is paying out to, um, to borrowers. And uh, inflation at 3 to 4%. Sorry, what is paying out to lenders is what a yield is. And then um, inflation at 3 to 4%, right? So I'm going to stop the episode here because really it'll easily get to an hour. No one wants to listen to me for an hour. 
I'm going to break it into a part two. And I'm going to do the part two uh, immediately, but it'll at least allow you to digest. So uh, this is part one of uh, currency devaluation uh, due to excessive printing. Part two on the way. Hey, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, this is part two of uh, my episodes that we're discussing um, currency devaluation due to uh, massive printing. And in the second part, it's a continuation of where we left off, and I don't want it to get lost on anyone. I just didn't want it to be too long. But, you know, we'll probably wrap it up here uh, within a few minutes and... Hopefully everyone will get an understanding. And if you don't, obviously you need to listen to it a few more times. It's, it's a complex concept um, overall of how deleveraging works and how um, the devaluing of currency ends up happening, right, along with inflation. The whole thing is just a, a weird, interesting concept. But it's how you get into such a hodgepodge and complex situation like what we're in currently. So... As we were speaking about before, um, you have all these factors that are building up uh, debt within within the system. And you have a particular scenario where deleveraging will not happen um, simply until we're forced to. That's, That's the best way to say it, right? Like, that's what 2008 references. That's what... Um, any systematic situation references is that you are forced to now reprice your markets because something has forced it to happen. And that's when I was speaking about you go through the same cycle all over again where the Fed is using monetary policy to peg inflation and peg yields. It gets to such a point where you build up debt until you're forced to deleverage it. Now, it starts to create an issue, though, and this is what I was talking about before of why you get fiscal policy stepping in, why politicians have to step in and things happen. It's because you start to get a disparity between rich and poor. This is what you saw with a lot of political unrest that was happening uh, within the protests for George Floyd. So many people are like, this is supposed to be a protest for police violence and killings. But people are looting, yes, because there is a gap between haves and have-nots. And that is often being caused by um, what happens within a long-term debt cycle. And the fact that it's pretty much capitalism for the poor, socialism for the rich. People like Mnuchin don't necessarily... Mnuchin being Treasury uh, Secretary Mnuchin, don't necessarily view things in this way, but they end up inheriting this problem because this is a cycle that has been happening long before they got there. Um, And this is why economists come to this notion that they're going to have to forcefully deleverage the situation of our currency. So... You get a situation of where you have um, a gap between the rich and the poor. It's almost like a top-down situation where all the money hits the top, hence why you see most um, monetary policy benefits people at the top. And 
you get to such an extent where fiscal policy has to step in and you have to redistribute the money. If you don't redistribute the money, you're going to have the barbarians banging at the gates or what you saw, political unrest in the streets. You give them money, they start to calm down. You have more people being able to do EDD fraud um, and cycle their money right back through the economy or SBA fraud, cycle their money right back into the economy and you see less just looting and burning because they can buy it at this point. That excess money within the economy, depending on how it's being spent and how much is being put in there, is what will determine um, when you have to hit a deflationary time because you're getting inflation, like I said before. Hopefully, you know, you paid attention and you kind of pegged these things in your head. Well, since you're not getting an inflationary situation happening, you're going to continue to print more money, hence more government aid, which is what is slowing down markets currently. Again, this is an episode about market commentary, so I want you to make sure you remember that and why all of this ties in together. So you need to make more monetary policy so Trump can up the ante. The administration can up the ante and say, we're going to make the largest stimulus bill. I can't remember the number he said. I don't know if it was $1.4 trillion. I think it's something like that, or it could be even more than that. That's the bill that we're about to put out there because they can. No inflation. Inflation is just simply not happening. And you want to know what? They don't care about how much they're spending because the only way you're going to solve this problem, and it won't even be Trump's problem even in a second term of election because they'll just continue to print, the only way you're going to serve, solve this problem is to run a surplus. And one of the good questions that people should be asking is, does anyone plan on running a surplus? Does anyone plan on ra- running a government surplus so you can start to balance some of this out and deleverage? Of course not. Because a pr- person who wants to run a surplus means he's spending less on the overall country. And they're not having that, right? There's a lot of powers that be that push against that. So until you are forced to deleverage, there will be no deleverage. And until you can get the consumer price index to increase and you can get inflation as a whole to increase, you will see more printing. Hence why I said universal basic income is here to stay for good. It's not going anywhere. This is our, they run these experiments already in South Korea and other places, and, they, and it works fine. And that's what's going to happen here. I don't want to regurgitate myself, but I do want to say, in closing, people kind of misunderstand it. They don't know because they think about it, and this is my opinion, they think about it from an ethical standpoint, but greed is the standard within this country. Greed is the standard within what the policies are. A righteous person or a person who finds themselves as righteous or something are going to be like, oh, you know, yeah, I can tell you that the government's, you know, greedy or this, that. No, just the, just the overall system is built on 
the human nature of people to push and push and push and push until it pushes back. And as long as the system isn't pushing back, people will grab with two hands. It's just a matter of if you understand what you're grabbing and how to grab it. This is where the concept of Gordon Gekko's greed is good comes from. Within that cycle at that time in the 80s, it was grab as much as you can. Do as much as you can within the rules that apply. And we are back to it in a whole nother cycle of grab and do as much as you can. On that side, savings and loan, savings and loans um, were the systematic issues that blew things up. On our side, we haven't hit it yet. This is my market commentary for the current time being. I hope that the episode finds you well, and I hope that you listen to this a few times so you can get a concept of what I'm saying. It's not easy to, to comprehend. Heck, it took me a long time to comprehend it. But it is what the playing field is. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to Trade Talk. L.A. Aiko here, signing out. Goodbye.